Wu-Tang, Wu-Tang. Olympic torch flaming, we burn so sweet. The thrill of victory, the agony defeat. We crush slow, flaming deluxe slow. Poor, judgment day cometh, conquer, it's war. Allow us to escape hell, glow spinning bomb. Pocket full of shells out the sky, golden arms. Tune spit the shitty mortal combat. Hello and welcome to the Throws Chat Podcast, the first one ever. I'm Myron. Jason. And we're going to start off today by talking about 2017 IAAF World Championships. So Jason, who do you think was the top performer at Worlds this year? So, in my mind, I think the top performances in general of the competition in throwing has to go to the men's discus. Um, for me, the top performer is the winner of the meet, um, Andreas Gudzius uh, out of Lithuania. You know, he uh, he's bringing back you know, the dominance of Lithuanian discus with his performance. And the fact that he, he's kind of an unknown. Like, you know, he, he's been around the scene for a few years, but in terms of, like, the concept of him meddling, let alone winning the whole world championship, well, I don't think too many people were giving him that sort of credit going in. They were probably expecting Daniel Stahl or even Fedrick Dakers to be challenging for that title. But Goodsey has stepped up over 69 meters uh, in London and, you know, got himself his first world championship and it's probably going to be the start of a very lucrative career for him. Yeah, Menzis has definitely had great performances at Worlds this year. For me, it's going to have to be Javelin with um, Johannes Vetter and his performance and really just the whole German team as a whole. You know, they had six athletes who qualified for Worlds. They can only bring three, but that group is really, you know, turning into a dynasty and I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a German javelin throw break the world record within the next year or two. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Not only were there two, uh, the two main javelin throwers, Thomas Roller and Johannes Vetter, uh, throwing you know in excess of 93 meters this year, but you also had uh, Andreas Hoffman. You know, he threw over 90 meters, over 91 meters at uh, the World University Games only a few weeks later, and you know that performance didn't even get him the gold medal at World University. Yeah. You know, the, the numbers that were hit at that meet alone would be challenging for any world championship or Olympic title. So, you know, the whole javelin scene right now is just globally improving at a rate that, like, I don't think people were expecting. And I think you are going to have a few people in the near future that, you know, given the right wing conditions, the right stadium, the right feeling, right condition uh, for them physically, you know, there might be a challenger uh, for Zelezny's world record in a few years. Here's a question. Do you think they'll change the model of the javelin again? Uh, if, they, if they break Zelezny's record? Yeah. Um, man, I don't know because he's already <laughs> at night. It took 104 meters to change it the first time uh, by the East German. And they kept it with Zelezny throwing 98 meters. So I'm not sure if it's like once you hit the triple digits... They start, you know, uh, cha- wanting to change and saying, "Oh, javelin's too dangerous." I mean, they're they're never going to get rid of the javelin. It's you know, it's one of the most iconic events of the Olympics. But w- to say that they'll change the javelin if they start getting over a hundred meters, um, I-, I would say probably. But I'm curious how they would end up doing that because the first time around they just kind of shifted the weight around in the javelin. But maybe they'll just have to add a few few more grams to it. Now, the biggest story, one of the biggest stories coming out of Worlds this year was 
the men's shot put final and, you know, the controversial calls on Ryan Krauser and Joe Kovacs out of the U.S. And so, I mean, really, Krauser was out of the back, right? Out of the back of the circle? Yeah, yeah. And then Kovacs was at the front on the toe board. And so what, what were your initial thoughts when you saw the replays of um, those fouls that were called on them? So I was trying to find a link in which I could watch, you know, the world championship legally. And... <laughs> Uh, I managed to find, I managed to catch the end of the world championship. I managed to catch the end of the event where Joe threw um, his massive foul over 22 meters, which would have been far enough to beat Tom Walsh and win. And in the moment, I thought he got it. I thought, you know, there's there's no foul. You know, the judges got it wrong. The same thing that happened in 2013 when David Storl was called on a foul. is going to be the same thing that happened to Joe, and he's going to get his win back. But, you know, after seeing enough angles of it, there is a point in which the side of his foot makes contact with the top of the board, and you can kind of see it, like, fold over uh, the corner of the toe board. So I will admit, I think Joe did foul, and I think that was a correct call by the official. The The bigger question in my mind is, is Krauser, because I didn't see what his throw was. I could have won until, like, a few days later. Uh, it took a while for that footage to come out, and... From what I saw, I don't know if it was a foul. I still question that, and I wonder if Krauser could technically lay claim to world champion. But the fact was, is it was a foul. They didn't have uh, enough evidence to prove that it that it wasn't a foul. So not that it was a foul, but that wasn't a foul. Um, so they they still gave the win to Tom. You know they. They didn't have enough people fighting for Krauser to say it was a it was a foul, and that that wasn't a foul. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting that whole that whole controversy because it got people talking about the men's shot put in a way that you know had a lot of debate online, and people were saying, "Oh, the Americans were screwed," but I don't think the Americans were screwed. I think maybe the rules and judging could maybe use a little work in terms of how you know, they perceive fouls and how we don't. So, you know, maybe we'll see uh, innovation in that they'll move to what long jump does and maybe add some plasticine to the side of the circle uh, so you can kind of feel see imprints of people putting weight down on it. But, I mean, that's a little absurd in my opinion. But I think, I think there at least needs to be more cameras and more um, high-speed cameras so that people can definitely know for sure whether or not these are fouls and you don't have people you know, constantly debating this online. Well, you know, my issue with Krausers and even with Kovacs was that these are, you know, 240-pound-plus athletes, These are and they're moving at high speeds. So as a referee and you're watching this, there's no way the ref 100% saw these fouls in the moment. So to me, it's like, as a referee, you have to give the benefit of the doubt to the athlete, and if another athlete wants to make a call, then that's their right. But as, as a referee, you cannot go on, oh, I think, I think he... You know, fouled or he may have. I'm like 50-50 sure. You have to either be 100% certain or you're not certain. The benefit of the doubt goes to the athlete. And then outside of that, I mean, Shopwood in general just needs some kind of, you know, better, like you mentioned, better system for detecting fouls. So whether it's like some kind of laser system on the toe board, something similar to what the, um, the jumps do, but something needs to be changed because even not on an international level, collegiate high schoolers, how many people have been cheated out of throws because you have refs who, you know, make calls on what they think they saw, what they may have seen, and, you know, I feel like the 
the officiating uh, for this particular event is just a little bit behind. Yeah, I think something that kind of goes unnoticed when discussing, um, you know, things like fouls, especially at something major like the World Championship, you know, you have to account for people's livelihoods. You know, uh, Krauser not meddling and, you know, is going to affect him probably later down the, down the road, you know. I, I, I can't know, I don't know for sure exactly if athletes can actually get compensation for their places at World Championship, um, but I know at least sponsors will affect that and they'll you know they're gonna pay you based on your performance at these major meets and to have title of world champion you know on your um, sponsored team you know that glo- that goes a long way so in a way it, it, it is a big deal when people get fouls and if they are wrongly accused of fouls it can really affect people it could affect you know their ability to pay for travel meals training for next season so, you know, I, I definitely think that Krauser's probably well off based on his previous Diamond League performances, but, you know, you got to think that how much money did Krauser lose by not even meddling at the World Championship because of someone thought that one of his throws was a foul, even though it was good enough to win. And, you know, just a big shout-out to Kovacs and Krauser for how they handled it afterwards. You know, Absolutely. They, they definitely showed a lot of class, and so, you know, interesting occurrence at the world championships not take anything away from tom walsh who had an outstanding performance and so um next up we've got our guest on the first throw shad podcast sean donnelly so stay tuned for that a quick shout out to our sponsor roadie sport roadie sport provides athletes with high performance training rooted in traditional theory and modern periodization models coach roadie's background allows him to provide technical expertise and a world-class training environment the Roadie Sport Shopper Glove is the ultimate training tool for athletes looking to reach the next level. Coach Roadie also offers wrist wraps and lifting straps that are durable, long-lasting, and designed for throwers. Learn more at www.roadiesport.com. We have on the line today uh, one Sean Donnelly. This guy is a eight-time Division Three All-American. He is a Division I All-American, one of the few to make the jump from D3 to D1. He is currently one of the top-ranked hammer throwers in the United States with a PR of 74 meters, 35 centimeters. And you know what? I'm really proud to have this guy on the line on the first episode of the Throws Chat Podcast. Welcome on, Sean Donnelly. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I'm, uh, I'm excited to be a part of this uh, first-ever Throws Chat Podcast. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So, um... Let's start off like Jason mentioned, talking about how you your you know your journey from Division Three to Division One. So, what was it like first competing as a Division Division Three athlete at um, Mountain Union? Uh, it was it was it was pretty awesome. Uh, I really loved it in Division Three. Um, I was really close with all my teammates, and uh, you know it was probably the the that was the first time I ever really had success um, in athletics too. You know, I wasn't a very good high school athlete. I made the state meet my senior year in shot put. Um, but besides that, like I was a terrible wrestler. I was didn't play football. I, you know, got cut from baseball. Um, so being able to uh, go to a Division three school to develop, um, you know, my shot put and discus and hammer throwing skills, um, you know, in in, uh, in that smaller sort of community, I guess you could say, um, you know, where it wasn't so cutthroat. You know. Uh, I had time to develop and found success rather quickly um, by kind of falling into Mount Union where I had um, my current coach, Sean Denard, uh, as a teammate. And then I also had a former um, 
uh, Mount Union alumni Justin Rohde uh, and, and Canadian Olympian national champion uh, at Mount Union to kind of help uh, coach me along and and uh, help me develop over the years and then yeah so it was competing at Mount Union was 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 awesome I loved it. Yeah, Meyer and I both have a lot of experience, you know, working with Justin. He's a great guy. And the few times I got to meet Sean, um, you know, great great guy, obviously awesome coach. Yeah. And, you know, when they when they do that big clinic every year um, at Grand Valley, like, it's always – that's always the highlight of my year is coming out there and seeing you guys and um, just seeing the awesome uh, team that Denard has built over there and, you know, obviously uh, seeing the work he's done with you. Oh yeah, no. The uh, any any time you get to bring together a whole bunch of uh, throwers together that are passionate about throwing, like that's my favorite favorite events of the year. Like the, the U.S. Championships, and then obviously the Big Clinic, and you know those those are absolutely absolutely the best. You get to learn a lot of things, and and uh, you know joke around with some of your favorite people. So yeah. So you say you weren't really too good at other sports though. What kind of drew you to throwing? Like when did you actually start out in high school and like, what was the thing that wanted to keep you going, uh, going to college? Um, so for me, uh, I don't know. I could, I could take this all the way back to, uh, I don't know, middle school. I actually started, I guess the, the one thing I did do with regards to throwing before my senior year of, um, of, of uh, track and field in high school was I threw discus in middle school uh, and just discus not shot put because uh, it was my my seventh grade science teacher I remember him by name I won't mention him but uh, I doubt he's gonna be listening to this anyways but um, he told me he's like yeah I don't think you uh I don't think you got the size or the strength to, to throw shot put mm-hmm. so I, I was only throwing discus and even then like I was I was decent I was like I think third best uh, anywhere from second to third best depending on the meet at my middle school, um, but got cut from, from shot put. He said, no more throwing shot put for you, probably not your thing. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but at the time, you know, I was still kind of, I thought I was a baseball player. Uh, so the freshman year of high school, tried out for baseball, made the freshman team, and I was kind of, you know, I, I played catcher. I was, uh, I would split time with one of the other catchers, and then um, see, uh, sophomore year, got cut from baseball, didn't make the team. So I was like, well, I don't know what to do now. Um, so I just kind of hung out with my friends more and like our thing was right after school, we'd go to the YMCA, uh, we would, we would lift and then we would play basketball for like hours at a time. Uh, and I wasn't even good at basketball, but I really enjoyed the lifting part. And then over time got really into that, uh, decided I wanted to go into strength and conditioning as, as a, as a career, you know, be a strength and conditioning coach. Mm-hmm. So I, I went and interned at a, a powerlifting gym, learned, you know, how to, squat deadlift bench properly uh, and that's about it everything else I learned there was kind of uh, not exactly by the book but I definitely learned some things I learned how to work hard I learned how to get big and strong um, and then from there my my uh, high school track coach uh, Matt Luck who is a blessing in disguise um, and kind of led me on this whole journey he's like hey you're going to come out and throw you're going to you're going to give it a shot and um and I was like, yeah, I don't know. And then, but then I remembered at the time the girl I had a crush on, uh, she uh, she used to date a discus thrower for one of the other schools, a rival school. So I was like, hmm, I wonder if I go out and I and I beat, you know, you know, the, the male ego. If I go out and I throw farther than her her uh, her her ex boyfriend or something like that, maybe she'll want to, you know, get with me instead. <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah. So uh, 
so that was that was probably the thing that kind of pushed me over the edge. You know, I was like, oh, you know what, I'll try it. Um, and then yeah, I went out and then started throwing. And I think the first time I ever picked up a shot put, I barely even I don't think I even threw it like 40 feet. Um, but somehow progressed over the the two or three months I had of that senior year of of uh, track and field, and uh, ended up throwing 53, uh, nearly 54 feet. Um, by the time I uh, I made it to the state meet, so. Yeah, that's kind of how I got into to track and field, and yeah, it was a long and winding road, but happy to be here. And so with having so much success in um, different events like that, at what point did you say, okay, it's time to put the shot put down, you know, I'm going to focus mainly on hammer? Yeah, it was um, it was my sophomore year uh, when I thought, like, and I thought, you know, after, after my freshman year, I threw uh, 17 meters 31, um, and the shot put, which was like, it was the it was the best freshman, the best mark for a freshman in Division three, and like one of the best marks for a freshman across all divisions. I think I was maybe in the the top ten. I really don't know. I don't remember the number, but it was good. So I was like, man, I could be, I could be really good at this. I'm young. I got time on my side. And then, um, so I thought I was going to be a shot putter. I thought like, you know, over four or five years of development, I was going to be making the Olympics and stuff like that. I was like, that's the goal. And then. I got hurt my sophomore year throwing shot put, um, and I had, I had some bad adductor problems. And then, um, you know, but I would still always throw hammer, and discus was just kind of like a, you know, just go throw it at meets. You don't need to practice it too much because you, you shot put similar enough. But um, but I would still be throwing hammer and had success with that, even though I wasn't really training it that hard. Um, and after that injury happened, I didn't make nationals my sophomore year. I... Uh, uh, but I made it in Hammer, and then I, I ended up taking fifth place um, and getting my first All-American in the Hammer throw. Uh, I was like, hey, maybe this is something I should uh, I should uh, consider pursuing further. So after that, after that year, after that injury, I was like, all right, I obviously I don't have the I'm not built like a shot putter, you know, mm-hmm. at least not stereotypically. Um, you know, I'm more of a, a Tom Walsh than a Ryan Krauser. Um, <laughs> You know, much shorter, and uh, I definitely don't have the the wrist wrist strength uh, to uh, to throw a shot put 20 or 21 or 22 meters or anything like that. So I was like, all right, maybe hammer's a thing. Like I'm literally the average sized hammer thrower. So I figured that's uh that's probably the route I should go. And um, yeah, so getting hurt kind of opened up once again another door um, that that kind of pushed me along in my my track and field career. All right, so like Jason mentioned earlier, you just got accepted into the Olympic Training Center. So tell us a little bit what that process was like, you know, applying for that and, you know, kind of the perks that come with being able to train there and have residency there. Yeah, um, no, this is big. This is big time, not just for me, um, but for uh, U.S. hammer throwing, I think, as a whole. Um, for the past years, and this is this has only been, my, like last year was my first year as a post-collegiate. Um, so... I've, but I've heard a lot of talk of oh they're going to put together USATF is going to is going to put together the funding and they're going to bring together you know three or four hammer throwers at one location and you guys are all going to train together under this coach and blah 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 and do that and um, from what I've heard those promises have been made for at least the past three four five years and it's you know and none of them have gone through so they've all been empty promises for the most part. Um, you know, and all the hammer throwers, and even most of the throwers in general, discus and shot put doesn't matter. Um, 
they don't get a lot of support in terms of financial support or even, um, you know, anything from USATF. Uh, so for USATF to actually uh, pony up and say, all right, we're offering you this spot uh, at Chula Vista, so which includes, you know, I get a, I get a bed, I get meals, everything's pretty much covered, everything you can think of. Uh, training facilities are going to be great, don't have to pay to use them. I get free food, I don't have to do dishes, which is my favorite part. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I get a place to stay in, in, a, in a relatively comfortable, but, uh, you know, not too extravagant uh, dorm room, and, um, you know, I get, I get top quality coaching, uh, strength and conditioning, weight room facilities, stuff like that. Um, so, like, they're, they're actually offering uh, at least one person in the hammer throwing community uh, a spot at continued development with some support rather than just being entirely on their own, doing their own thing, like I spent the past year doing up in Minneapolis. So um, for USATF to do that is kind of, you know, this is a big deal. I think I'm also the first male hammer thrower to be at uh, on a full-time residency spot at Chula Vista, I think, and I can't even think of the last person who had a spot like that. So um, this, is a, this is kind of a big deal, and hopefully I can live up to their expectations. <laughs> yeah, so most definitely. So, you know, you were doing – how would you describe your training, the training environment there when you were – because I remember you were posting some um, vlogs about it back in the early spring. Um, how was your training there last time, and how do you think it, you know, obviously is going to – like, how do you think that experience is moving you forward into – going to compete and going to train there full time? Uh, it definitely helped out uh, because obviously if, if you guys have seen my very, the very first vlog I made when I went to Chula Vista, I was like, it's not as, you know, cool or exciting or whatever as, as I thought, you know, because you think Olympic training center, like this is going to be some high tech, like crazy, you know, awesome stuff. And then you get there and it's pretty much like, you know, uh, to, to be fair, like the, it's not as great as, as, as I thought it was, um, no. but it's still, it's very solid. It's everything you need. Mm-hmm. You know, it's nothing extra. It's everything you need to, you know, compete at a very high level. Uh, so getting that experience the first time I went, and then I went once more in March. Unfortunately, I lost all my vlog footage uh, from that one. Um, but I got a feel for what it would be like to train there full time. Um, and, you know, rather than going in with some, some false assumptions, um, I know what to expect, um, and it's definitely, it, it definitely helps prepare me. Um, if I did not know what it was like to be there, and I would have just, you know, um, and I would have just accepted a position like this, then it definitely, I think, would have thrown me off a little bit for the first month or so. But I know exactly what I'm getting myself into, and it's definitely going to help make the transition that much smoother. So it'll be good. Yeah, that's awesome. It seems like uh, a great opportunity for you to improve and, you know, to get that help that um, a lot of, you know, post-collegiate throwers don't really get unless they're, you know, signed to a major shoe company. Um, You know, all the best luck to you, man. I think think that's a great step moving forward for your career. Yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Um, So you you mentioned your time at Minnesota. Um, kind of walk us through what was it like, you know, you were a D3 athlete at probably the top, you know, Division three track and field school, Mount Union, and, you know, you were there for three years, you were training, you, you pretty much saw all the success you could, you could want. You were national champion in multiple events, 
uh, like I previously said, eight-time All-American. How is it like going from being king of the mountain, essentially, in D3, to transferring to one of the largest D1 schools in the nation uh, and having to compete and contend in the Big Ten? Yeah, no, that was uh, the transition uh, from D3 to D1, man. That was like, that was, uh, it was, it was probably the scariest part of my track and field career uh, so far. Um, and, you know, this is one of those things where I was going, like you said, I was kind of the big fish in the small pond. Um, I felt like, like there was not much more to achieve. Like how many more national titles could I win? You know, there, once I, not, not in a cocky way, but it's like, what's the next achievement that I can do that I haven't already done? Yeah. Um, um, so I was like, all right, this is probably a good time for me to kind of step back and, and, uh, and, and make the transition. Um, but as soon as I did that, I realized I was like, Hey, looking at my PRs, my disc PR wouldn't even come close to making finals at the big 10 level, let alone nationals. Um, my shop with PR might make a big 10 final. Um, but I've only thrown 18 meters once in my life. And then, um, my my hammer PR would maybe make the Big Ten final and might make a uh, Division One uh, national championships. And so, like as soon as I finish up my indoor career, my last indoor career at uh, at Mount Union, um, I was like, all right, I got to get to work like ASAP. So I still competed that outdoor season. I redshirted, so I didn't really uh, have any you know crazy meets I went to. I competed at Jesse Owens, and I think I actually had a I only ended up throwing like 64 meters that, that outdoor season uh, as a red shirt. But then again, I wasn't training that hard. Um, I didn't have that goal of, all right, you're going to a national championships. You got to, you got to step your shit up. You know, yeah. um, it was, it was rather, okay, just keep putting in the training. And the long-term goal is, you know, the following year's division one national championship. Um, so I literally trained, I think I took maybe two weeks off after the season uh, I was working a, a full-time coaching job over the summer, but I was still training full-time, essentially. Um, so, like, I, I was kind of freaking out. I was like, man, I'm going to go from being the big fish in the small pond to making this jump, and the the chance of me not being successful at all is probably higher than I'd like to admit. Um, so I worked my ass off that summer. I was thinking, I was like, man, I'm going to go in, and, and like, I, I met all the guys that, I, that were going to be my teammates. I went on a visit during uh, – May of 2015, met all my teammates, and I'm like, I am the smallest, least athletic guy. <laughs> um, you know, once I transfer, I'm, I'm, it's going to be embarrassing, you know, because people are going to be like, oh, this is this is the guy that's supposed to be throwing, you know, 70 meters this year. And luckily none of my teammates were like that. They all had, you know, respect for me and what I did at Division Three, so I, I appreciate them for that. But, um, yeah, I was just like, I'm going to look like a chump. And, like, I'm not strong, I'm not explosive, I'm not, you know, technically I was okay, but uh, definitely not the best technically. You know, my teammate John Lorenzo had thrown 69 meters at the time, and his technique looked flawless. Um, so, like, I was just freaking out, and I worked my ass off. Like, I was like, I need to step my game up if I'm going to have any sort of contention, not just at the Big Ten level, but at the, at the, uh, at the national level, too, so... I worked my ass off that summer. I got to Minnesota, and, like, immediately I was, like, and, and uh, my coach at the time, he was, like, hey, yeah, just take this week and, and kind of relax, get adjusted to uh, to the, to the you know, to the environment. And um, and I was, like, coach, I want to start training right now. Like, 
can I can I go throw? Can I go lift? Can I go do something? He's like, yeah, maybe go do some drills. And, like, that's all he said. So I went and did drills every day over that week when we were just supposed to be doing nothing. And uh, I was just – I literally like, – that's that was my mindset for the entire year, my entire first year of Minnesota. Um, I always wanted to do more. At one point I was – I think we were supposed to be lifting eight times a week, and we were supposed to be uh, throwing – for me, it was anywhere from from six to eight times a week too. So it was, um, and it was all you know. Of course, there's the limits at Division One, but it was all voluntary. Um, so I think that kind of I don't know how that works out, but but I, I worked my ass off, and I think if I did that under the current policies, I'm sure there'd be some sort of problem if the NCAA found out about it. But they don't need to know <laughs> that. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, just I. I I worked my ass off, and I was like, I'm not going to be left behind. I'm not going to get left in the dust during this transition. Um, and uh, and luckily it paid off with my opening meet of my uh, career at Minnesota, like PRing by eight meters um, and setting what would be, I think, the number three mark in the incident play that year. Yeah, so about that throw, like, I remember um, – so obviously you and I knew each other by this point, but I don't think we've met in person – and I was kind of tracking your career, seeing how you're doing, knowing that you were transitioning to D1. Because the same time you were transitioning to D1, I, ironically enough, was transitioning from D1 to D3. So I was really curious, like, how you'd end up doing. And when I saw the result come up, like, that following day of what's still your, your PB, I, my, my head almost exploded. And I was just like, that's <laughs> crazy, like... To see someone, you know, because I knew you were working really hard and see you hit a mark like that that I felt like you outright just deserved. Like, yeah. it was awesome. So walk me through, like, what was it like being at that competition? Because I, I think you, you were at Arizona State, correct? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so what was that like when that number popped up or just, like, how you were feeling that whole day, No, like, knowing at the end, like, you hit just an absolute monster? Yeah. Um, no, <laughs> thanks, man. Um, that that competition, like looking back on it, was like in comparison to how I felt at like Division three meets. Like I'd go to my regular season meets, my opener, and I would just kind of do my thing and say, hey, you know, I might I may or may not hit a national qualifying mark at this meet. It doesn't really matter. I got plenty of time. Um, but then in Division three, when it came to nationals, I was like, all right, this is it. Now or never. Like you either PR or you go home and you're a loser not necessarily a loser but that's how I thought um and then uh and then that first meet at Minnesota I had that same sort of mindset where it's like all right this is it you've put in all this work like and it was in in hindsight it probably wasn't best to have that mindset going into that meet yeah. but at the same time I don't think I would have thrown 74 meters had I not have that you know do or die sort of mentality I was like this is your first meet at division one you don't want to look like a chump you put in all this hard work now's the time to put it all together and show everybody who Sean Donnelly is to put your name out there. Cause otherwise, you know, I, I was a nobody in the, in the general track and field world, um, you know, kind of, and I was just like, all right, this is it. And I was like, I was so excited. Like, like I said, kind of, kind of had that, those nerves you get at like a, at a division, like a national championship sort of meet. And, um, I was like, oh, my God, there's Arizona State, and there's Iowa, and there's Kansas, and all these big names. And, like, they didn't have any great hammer throwers, but I was like, but, like, there were people that I knew, because I'm such a huge track and field nerd, like, I yeah. knew all these people I was competing with. Like, there were people from Kentucky, uh, and, like, I knew all these people, and I'm like, dude, these are people I looked up to, like, two years ago. 
like, and I'm competing against them. So like, it was just, it, I was, I was buzzing. I was buzzing the entire meet and my first throw, like I had the worst 65 meter throw of my life. And, uh, like I was, I opened up like maybe a foot or two under my, my, my previous best 66 meters. And I was like, that was like the worst, like literally worst feeling throw of my life. I totally botched it. Just let it go. Just so I got a mark, marked at 65 meters. And I went in like, I, my coach was like, all right, good. You got a mark. Just take a deep breath, relax and do your thing. And, uh, and as I went through the throw, my second throw, uh, nice, easy winds, easy, easy enter. And then, um, like it just kind of took off. Like literally I, I remember feeling it and I haven't felt this feeling since in a throw, uh, two like turn two into turn three. I literally felt the ball just whiz past me. Like, like somebody just took it and was like, Hey, help me out a little bit. And just like, and like, I, like some, some sentient spiritual being, I don't know what it was, but the ball just took off and I didn't even think about it. I just thought about picking up and putting my right foot down twice and then just letting go. And that's exactly what happened. I look at the, the video and I'm like, technically, like, that's not great. But the ball speed, like, was was incredible. And it came down and, like, anything past, like, 65 meters, I had no idea how far it was. So I'm thinking, all right, cool. I just hit, like, my first 70-meter throw, maybe, maybe 71, walk out of the circle. I'm still kind of excited. I'm still buzzing because I'm like, and, and then, uh, and then I take like four steps out of the circle and they call it, they say 74 meters, 35. And like, I, I, my jaw drops and I'm like, I'm like, what? And I'm like, I, I literally, I don't, am I allowed to swear? Are you guys going to? Okay. And like my teammate, he's like, dude, holy shit. And I'm like, I'm like, and literally I, I can't think. I'm like, what the fuck just happened? And I'm like, what? And then, uh, and my coach is freaking out apparently he was like throwing his hat and doing back wheels and their cartwheels cart and backflips and stuff. I don't know. He was he going nuts, doing I back guess. wheels. Back wheels, yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. He was doing them. Um, he was going nuts, and my teammates were just like, "Holy crap, dude! Like we knew you were going to throw far, but not that far." And I was like, "Dude, same." And uh, yeah, and and then just the rest of that day, I was like, "Well, I don't think I could have asked for a better first meet," you know. <laughs> so. Um, that was uh that was an experience that's for sure. Yeah, so it sounds like, you know, the theme of your career is a lot of big jumps in a short amount of time. So from D3 to D1, you know, the big PR and now being a post-collegiate athlete. Can you tell us a little bit what it's like, you know, competing overseas now and then what your relationship is like with other US throwers because a lot of other groups have a really, you know, tight knit connection, you know, men's shop in the US, German javelin throwers. So what's it like between you and guys like Kidway Johnson? Yeah, um no, it's it's uh, the relationship with the other throwers. Um, like I said, the USATF has helped us out a little bit this year, and they're putting together uh, what they call the the Hammer Initiative. Um, so so people like myself and Kibway, uh, Colin Dunbar, Michael Learman, and uh, and Connor McCullough, all the U.S. post collegiate hammer throwers, and now I think Alex Young. And uh, once Rudy finishes up school, he'll be included too. Um, we all kind of get the opportunity to go to the same meets and compete against each other and um and in some cases like you said go over to overseas to germany and compete so we got to spend a lot of time together and um where it kind of becomes um you know like where i was i would kind of be friends with michael and and colin and kibway you know from the past times i've seen them like last year but not this year it's kind of like we're, we're i would feel like uh 
like like last year or even like at the beginning of this year, I felt like myself and Kidway were just acquaintances mm-hmm. where I yeah. could go up and t- I could chat with him, but like, you know, I didn't really know him that well and I didn't get to, you know, like if I was joking around with him, I feel like I might be able to say something that would uh, bother him. But <laughs> but now that we um, now that we know each other very well, um, we're, we're definitely more like friends, like, like good friends, that's for sure. Uh, that's definitely more close-knit, like you said. Um, you know, we're, we 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 spent three weeks together um, traveling to Arizona and Germany, and um, the time we spent doing that, we definitely became more of a family. You could tell, uh, you know, Kibwe was kind of like the dad, and myself and and Dunbar were kind of we were kind of like uh, like the the like the close closer brothers, and then we would always bother Learman because he was he's easily perturbed, um, <laughs> but. Uh, and so, like, by the end of the trip, you could see, like, I, I kind of felt bad for, a little, like, a little bit because I was like, we, we were just picking on Learman so much because he's kind of, you know, he's just easily uh, easily picked on. Um, but, yeah, no, it's it's great having that, that close-knit connection with him, and I'm excited to uh, to have Alex and, and Rudy join us eventually. Unfortunately, Connor couldn't make the trip because he had some uh, some prior engagements. But, but, yeah, definitely spending time with all those guys is, is cool, um, and, it, and it's a lot of fun because, once again, they're people that – Two years ago, like I, I looked up to like really like uh, it was. It's insane to think about like I, I would watch their their videos on YouTube and I'd be like, man, if I could just throw like that, and I wonder what that person's like and stuff like that. And now here I am competing against them and spending you know weeks on end with them. So it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, as for as for competing overseas, man, that's a, that's a different uh, once again a different experience. The the travel plays a big part. In um, in affecting how your body you know kind of reacts to to training and competition over there. Um, my first competition over in Germany, like I had my second worst meet of the year because my legs were just dead from travel. And then um, you know by the uh, by the the second competition had come around, I'd kind of recovered a little bit. Training was still terrible that whole week, so I thought I was going to have another 70 meter meet. And then um, but the environment was just great. You know, uh, Europeans love track and field and fortunately the meet we were at uh, Europeans loved hammer throw uh, so we were in like a really good um, it was sort of like it's comparable to like US Nationals where there were a lot of 68 69 70 71 meter guys and then a couple guys out at 72 73 74 75 you know stuff like that um, so luckily I was good enough to to, to bust out a, a 7388 and um, you know, it was just it was just an incredible experience. You know, the the environment is it, it's hard to find an environment like that in the U.S., uh, especially for the hammer throw. You know, you'll you'll get big crowds for for sprints and distance races and stuff like that, but uh, the crowd they brought together at, at Frankish Krumbach for uh, the hammer throw was just absolutely incredible. That's awesome, because. Um, you know, you hear a lot from the U.S. side of things that the Europeans, you know, they they seem to just have a better knowledge and a, a better care for the sport. Um, and, and to know that you, you kind of got that experience, like, that, that kind of motivates um, someone like me that whether I would be able to go out and actually compete in Europe or sometime, but at least go out there and see, like, what some of these competitions are like as a fan. Um, because it just sounds like it would just be such a better atmosphere than something you'd usually get around here in the U.S. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a different culture. You know, when you take out, you know, they don't really, basketball's not really big over there, football's not really big. 
Um, you know, they have soccer or European football, whatever you want to call it. Obviously, that's a big that's big over there. But besides that, like, um, they don't have those huge revenue sports of, of basketball and American football. So they kind of, uh, I think that's why athletics, track and field is kind of is big over there, um, you know. And then um, they also aren't afraid to serve beer at, uh, <laughs> at, at these meets, which is a huge draw, obviously, because what's more fun? Like, beer makes everything better. Absolutely. Um, so... Uh, you know, imagine you're kicking back watching Usain Bolt run 100 meters. Obviously, it's, it's going to be fun to watch regardless. But, hey, now I can get a beer for a couple of euro and sit back and relax and hang out with my buds and, and watch some of the best athletes do their thing. That's one hell of an environment, not just for the spectators, but for the athletes as well. Because, you know, once you get some alcohol flowing, you might get a little rowdier and, and more excited when, when big things happen. So, um you know the 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 athletes might get a little bit more fired up with some crowd engagement. So, yeah, it's just a di- it's a different culture, but it's something that I think needs to be adopted in the uh, U.S. track and field world. And I think that's what the Track Down Summer Series tried to do this year. And it was it was better, but it's still it's still got a long ways to go. Yeah, and you know uh, the Track Down Summer Series. You know, following that this summer, I think it's definitely a good first step. Uh, the fact that they were able to do Facebook Live, so you could. You know, it was a general broadcast where you didn't need some, uh, you know, cable package like you would with, like, NBC to watch some good track. Uh, I thought that was really good for the sport and definitely a good first step. Um, so, what I, I definitely agree with you that uh, the fact that they do have that culture where you can just sit back, drink a beer with your buddies, and watch some good old track and field, there is an entertainment aspect to it that I feel like you know, a lot of broadcasters don't see that is not only in sprinting, but also like in the throws, you know, there's so much drama that can happen over the course of, you know, a competition. And the fact that, you know, these competitions in Europe and meet directors are seeing that, that that's great to know that there's at least someone out there in the sport that's able to promote an environment like that. Exactly. Yeah. Now the, uh, it, that's the, that's the problem with I think you know especially in the throws in, in the U.S. track and field where they might have an hour time slot for track and field on you know national television, but you're only going to see the top three throws and the shot put or the discus or the hammer throw if you're you lucky. Get, if you're lucky and you don't yeah. get to see the development of the drama to oh this guy jumped that person and then they jumped back and then all of a sudden this guy comes out of nowhere so like you miss all that stuff and. Uh, when you're watching track and field in person and you have these meets put on by really great meet directors and stuff like that, um, you you actually get to see that in person. And it doesn't happen all the time, unfortunately. You know, just like not every football game or every basketball game is the most exciting. Yeah. But, you know, it still happens. And if we don't highlight that at least, you know, sometime during the year, then obviously track and field's never going to grow and we're never going to get that, that huge audience that, that we want. Yeah. And... Um... You know, on, on, on that note, um, from what your experience was in Germany, I was curious, uh, you know, with you being with the American Hammer Throwers and even uh, some of the European Hammer Throwers, you have any uh, good stories they have from, like, uh, maybe nights after the competition? Uh, oh, my pre- pre- Preferably, preferably uh, uh, meeting the realm of PG-13 at worst, but... <laughs> if, 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 I, I've always heard stories, you know, from working with Justin that, you know, things get, you know, pretty crazy after some of these meets. Yeah, um, <laughs> we did not do anything super crazy, I would say. Um, 
But, uh, yeah, no, I definitely, there's definitely some stories. Uh, I'll just preface it by saying that um, look out for my, my vlogs from Germany because oh. I decided I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put it all in. You know, I'm obviously going to censor the things that need to be censored, but I'm going to leave all that stuff in there. You know, I'm going to show what actually happened, <laughs> uh, you know, the couple, the, the night after competition, you know, stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, no, we, uh, our first meet in Germany, uh, we went to go – uh, hang out with some of the German German athletes. Um, they weren't like the big time names. Like it wasn't it wasn't like the the national level like or uh, international guys, but it was still German athletes. And and they said, hey, come over, we're gonna have a barbecue. And um, so we went and hung out with them. And uh, they grilled up some meat. And they're like, oh yeah, we got some beer too. So uh, we thought it was just gonna be a chill, relax. Like okay, we're gonna have a couple of beers and then and then and then go back home. Uh, turns out. Uh, we just decided to start playing. Um, this game was called Flunky Ball. That's what they called it. <laughs> and and it's hard to describe, but it's you have two teams and you're throwing a ball and trying to knock this bottle over. And um, it's it's kind of like it's like uh, I don't know if I should mention, but it's kind of like beer ball. If you guys have ever played that in the in the yeah. collegiate scene, um, <laughs> where if you hit if you hit the bottle and knock it over, you drink until it's put back up, and the other team grabs the ball and is back on their side. Um, so like they started, the, the Germans started playing this game, and like myself and all the other U.S. guys are standing around, like, what is this? What is going on? And they're like, oh, it's flunky ball. And they're like, do you guys want to play? And we're all like, yeah, I don't know. We're kind of like we had a couple beers, but we weren't like ready to. We weren't trying to party. Yeah. Um, and then I don't know if it was myself or it was you know Dunbar's always got that. Uh, he's kind of the party animal. He's 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 got the lively <laughs> spirit of all of us and. I don't know. One of us was like, "Yeah, let's do it," and and then we started. We started playing flunky ball, and then like eight games later, um, we ran out of beer, and we're like, "We need more beer." Uh, so then one of the Germans went and got some more, and then all of a sudden, I think we ended up getting back to our hotel room at like three or four a.m. and we had to catch a train to to uh, Dusseldorf or what was it to, to Frankfurt the, the next day uh, at like at eleven a.m. Um, so we all woke up kind of feeling a little hungover, but yeah, so that was, that was, and that's just like, that's the low key, very low key version of that story. Like I said, you have to wait and see, see the vlog. Things got weird. And even the stuff I think I'll put in the vlog, like it's still, it doesn't even touch, it doesn't even touch the, uh, or scratch the surface. Um, I don't know. We'll see though. I, I literally, I just started editing that yesterday. Um, and then, um, as for our second night in, in lever or yeah, was it Frankish Krumbach? We got to hang out with like some of the some of the British uh, hammer throwers, Mark Dry, who's one hell of a character, and then even uh, Chris Bennett is very uh, very funny himself. And then um, I think Sultana Sultana Frizzell was there, and then uh, yeah, and uh, these like these are more like big time hammer throwers. Where once again it was like even last year I was like I looked up to these people, and now here I'm competing with them and hanging out with them. Um, it's pretty crazy, and yeah, it's the same thing. So at the meet at Frankish Krumbach, like I said, there was. There was, you know, a huge crowd. They had uh, a beer stand and a food stand. And for the athletes, we got a yellow wristband, and they said, all right, go eat and drink as much as you want. And this is before competition and after competition. So obviously I, I stayed away from the beer before competition, but, like, they had literally they had steak sandwiches, and by steak sandwiches I literally mean, like, steaks. Like I mean, two pieces of bread, not like, like a slab of steak, up, just like a slab of steak, not like cut up, uh, you know, like a, like a Philly cheese steak, like literally uh, a strip steak between two pieces of bread. 
Yeah, and then yeah. uh, and they had bratwurst and fries and stuff, and that was like I literally ate so much, and it was so good, and I miss it every day. But um, I gained like so much weight over that trip; it was ridiculous. But uh, but yeah, so we had that, and then as soon as the competition was over, it was the same thing. Where I was like, all right, go eat a couple steak sandwiches, go eat a couple bratwurst, and then just start drinking. Uh, the big thing over there is uh, is Weiss beer, um, so like Hefeweizens. Okay. Um, and uh, so yeah, and it's just like hey start drinking like literally before we even stepped onto the podium for the 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 trophy ceremony uh we all had a couple beers down at that point <laughs> um, so so you can imagine where the night went from there i think once again you have to check out the vlogs this will probably um be a, at least one or two episodes after after this uh the episode where we all play flunky ball and stuff like that but um i think myself and mark dry we somehow ended up uh, they had a very small, very small, I don't, I don't think you could even call it a weight room. It was more of a garage with a barbell and a squat rack. And um, and we were all a couple beers deep at this point. We were all just kind of hanging out, having fun, getting to know one another. And uh, I don't know what happened, but somebody pulled out the, the the barbell and put some plates on it. And then me and Mark Dry ended up getting into a one-legged deadlift competition. One-legged? Uh, <laughs> one-legged deadlift competition, yeah. And it was, it was literally, it was probably 30 people jam-packed in this tiny little garage watching me and Mark Dry deadlift weights with one leg. And like people were yelling and screaming and like cheering. It was was probably just as exciting as the, uh, as the throwing competition, that's for sure. Um, And I think, I think I ended up beating Mark. I don't remember exactly. I think we, we, we got up to what was, I think 180 kilograms, so like almost 405 on one leg. And, uh, and yeah, looking back on it, it was like really stupid. I was like, my, my, the leg I was using was really sore for like a couple of days afterwards. And I was like, that was, that was really dumb. But at the time it was really fun. Um, and then whatever happened after that, that deadlift competition, everything started getting hazy. And then by the time the sun went down, I don't remember much anything, <laughs> but, um, well, once again, like I said, there's video, there's video of that. So so uh, you guys will have the uh, the liberty to, to check that out once that vlog gets posted. And hopefully uh, USATF like, doesn't take away my funding after watching these videos. <laughs> but... Nice. We'll be on the lookout for that. So what's what's on your schedule for the rest of the year as far as, you know, training, competing, and um, also your own brand, is, you know, your vlog and things like that? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, training, I'll, I'll be moving out to, to Chula Vista by the end of uh, this month, by the end of September. Uh, I think training starts up in October, um, officially. I've been training officially at the start of this week, so uh, i got to adjust training plans a little bit. But So, yeah, so that's training. No no competitions, as far as I know. Um, for the rest of this year, I'll probably open up indoors sometime probably uh, January, mid-February, get a mark, because I know U.S. indoors is a little bit earlier this year. But... Um, yeah, as for after after that stuff's all set up, um, big plans for for my business and my YouTube channel. Um, uh, the goal is to, uh, like I said on that on my most recent YouTube video that I posted, YouTube domination, <laughs> which is you know a little bit of a a little bit of a stretch. I don't think a, a thrower currently with 500 subscribers is ever going to dominate the YouTube <laughs> the YouTube game. But in terms of the the track and field world. Uh, I want I want YouTube domination. Um, so you know the goal is to to kind of grow my audience, um, post more content, uh, higher quality content more frequently and more consistently, um, 
kind of get on a schedule so people can wake up on a Monday and say, oh, Sean posted a video today and get excited about it, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then, um, yeah, so grow my audience and then kind of use that as uh, as, a, as a platform, uh, you know, to kind of to kind of help grow track and field and stuff like that. Um, I'm going to be setting up uh, my, my coaching business, Atlas Peak Performance. I've had it I've had it up for the past year, and to be fair, I haven't advertised it at all, really. Uh, I've had some people uh, inquire about me coaching them uh, online, privately, stuff like that, and, and I've had a couple clients and people that I've worked with um, who've kind of reached out, so it's more, you know, word of mouth and, and uh, people reaching out to me, whereas now the goal is to kind of set it up and advertise for it and um, help, once again, grow the, tr- the sport of track and field, not in terms of, oh, hey, like, this is really cool, check this out, but in terms of help grow track and field by um, helping athletes grow and develop and then hopefully contributing to, you know, somebody who's going to, you know, maybe maybe throw a world record one day. I don't know, it's kind of a stretch, but, you yeah. know, help, <laughs> help, help grow and develop and, and uh, expand upon current training methods in track and field to help other people have more success. Um, so that's kind of the goal for this fall is to set up my coaching business more, more, uh, I guess, help setting up my coaching business better and then um, grow my audience on YouTube and grow my social media following and help spread the sport of track and field and then inspire people to kind of, kind of chase their goals and go after their goals, um, you know, a little bit more wholeheartedly um, rather than, you know, kind of sitting back and saying, oh, maybe I don't think I can achieve this. I want to say, I want to be, you know, I want to show people, like when you hear about my story, like I wasn't good at sports in high school, yeah. made the, the the growth from D3 to D1 to where I'm at now. Um, when I had that goal of being an Olympic-level athlete as a freshman shot putter at Mount Union, like I, I didn't tell anybody that, but I, I believed it. But I didn't tell anybody, and I'm sure anybody I would have told at that time would have just been like, no, dude, you're crazy. Like you're so far off, it's not going to happen. But I always had that belief, and uh, and it's it still holds true now. Except you know, sports changed a little bit. I'm throwing hammers at a shot put, but I still have that belief, and I think that's what's kind of um, you know propelled me so far in my career is that belief, that unwavering belief. And I just want to show people that um, through my YouTube channel and through my coaching business that um, you know, with the right programming and the right you know training methods and the right belief and the right coach behind you that your dreams can come true, or at least you may not achieve them, but you'll definitely be closer than you thought was possible originally. So that's the goal for the fall. Inspire some people, make them better athletes, grow the business, grow the sport of track and field. So, yeah. That's awesome, uh, Sean. You know, something I've always appreciated about you is the personal initiative I thought you've always taken in terms of trying to uh, not only improve yourself as a thrower, but grow your brand and grow your social media following, you know, starting up the vlog, doing all the things you're doing with coaching, I, the way you, in which you execute that stuff and the fact that you are taking that initiative, because I think a lot of athletes aren't taking that initiative, you know, I think that speaks volume to what you want to achieve in the sport and where you think the sport can go. And, you know, the plans you have for the rest of the year, I think, are obviously leading to that. <laughs> you know, you obviously have some big plans, um, big ideas. And, you know, uh, if there's anything else that you think you'd uh, like to promote um, while, while we can, um, 
obviously what you're doing with Atlas Peak Performance is great. You're, I, I've seen some of your uh, coaching videos, some of your technical analyses, and you know you're giving out some great advice to you know kids, college kids, and you know <laughs> if there's anything else you'd like to add, I I, I think you're 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 obviously promoting and uh, a very elite professional brand that a lot of other athletes um, ha- I haven't really seen you know you know uh, achieve that. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, thank you. Thank you for all the kind words. It means a lot. Uh, obviously, I take pride in in taking that personal initiative, you know, uh, as a post-collegiate athlete, uh, everybody I've spoken to is like, why don't we get any support? Why don't we get any, you know, any funding? And, um, and I, I kind of felt that way for a little bit as well. Um, until I realized, Hey, like, you know, New York athletic club, isn't going to fund a 74 meter hammer thrower that hasn't made an Olympic team. Uh, USATF foundation isn't going to fund, you know, that same sort of athlete. So I was like, all right, I need, if I want to make it, uh, to where I want to go, uh, I need to, uh, take it upon myself to support myself. And, um, and I think, uh, that's, that's something that a lot of newly post-collegiate athletes lack where it's, I don't want to call them entitled. Um, you know, I don't know if it's just the, the millennial sort of mindset, uh, where I feel like, I don't feel like I fit in very well with the, uh, the millennial sort of, stereotypes where I expect stuff to be handed to me and stuff like that. My parents, I could say, helped raise me right, and I, they taught me how to work hard and, and earn the things that, uh, that you know, that I have. And uh, I feel like this, that, that sort of mindset is, is what's missing from track and field currently, um, and not just in the, uh, the younger post-collegiate population, but even the older professional population. They want the sport to grow, but they're not willing to do anything about it. They just want to. They just want more attention, but they're not going to put in the work to get more attention and to grow the sport. Um, and I think that's one thing, like you said. I think uh, that I've kind of realized, and and I need to take it upon myself to make all this stuff happen. Um, but yeah, if you, if if anybody out there listening um, wants to get involved with me as uh, you know in a coach athlete relationship, or if you just want to check me out on YouTube, check out my coaching analysis, technical analysis videos. Um, I'm actually going to be starting up a new YouTube channel, uh, so there's going to be the Sean Donnelly uh, Hammer Thrower sort of uh, YouTube channel where that's, I'll post on my vlogs and you know all my entertaining stuff, hopefully. And then I'll have the Alice Peak Performance YouTube channel where I'll post all my coaching-related videos, whether it's technical analysis or how-to tutorial videos or you know stuff like that. So I'll be starting that up probably within a couple weeks here. Um, but yeah, check me out on YouTube currently. Sean Donnelly, you can just probably just type in Sean Donnelly Hammer Throw. My actual YouTube channel is S Donnelly 7, D O N N E L L Y 7. Um, <clears throat> check me out. Go subscribe for some hopefully hilarious vlog content coming up with this Germany trip. Um, and, then, um, and then eventually the Atlas Peak Performance YouTube channel for some educational, informational stuff like that to help you throw farther, not only in hammer, but in shot put and discus and maybe javelin one day if I. Uh, but dabble, um, and then um, and yeah, so so you check me out on YouTube, uh, AtlasPeakPerformance.com um, for coaching services. Right now, I only have technical analysis uh, up, but like I said, over the, the following weeks, I'll have you know private coaching services. I'm I'm planning on putting together like some template programs where people can just buy them, and you know put them into use without having to you know deal with my nonsense of talking their ear off. Um, and then, uh, and then also check out. Uh, I'll be releasing the triphasic, 
training throws manual once again over the next couple of weeks by the end of the month and uh, that'll be literally the amount of information that myself and Cal are giving away in in that uh, that I'm guessing it's gonna be a 30 to 40 dollars we haven't set up final price point yet that's going to depend on how much we actually have in the manual but the amount of information right now that is going into that manual is stupid like I'm giving it away and it comes with an entire year yearly macro cycle program for any thrower to just implement and that's going to be I think something special because a lot of coaches and a lot of athletes a lot of high level athletes don't do that where they literally say hey here this is what I've done essentially for the past you know year for the past two years or the past couple of years this is my entire system here take it run with it do what you need to do adjust it as you will here are the concepts and here are the theories behind it and here's how it works and um, and just do your thing with it I don't think any high level coach or athlete has done that as far as I'm concerned um, I think John Smith has put out like a program once maybe but he doesn't he doesn't it's, it's not recent um, so that's another thing I want to help contribute to the sport and help grow the sport, not just in a, you know, by getting a bigger audience, but progressing the training methods. And, and this triphasic training book is uh, is a part of that. Um, so I'm excited for that to come out. I think a lot of people will enjoy that. And then, um, yeah, besides that, I feel like I've been rambling for some point now. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but follow me on, uh, on SD Throws on Instagram for some uh, training updates and other stuff about methodology and entertaining stuff, maybe. I don't know. And then um, Atlas Peak Performance, once again, uh, on Instagram and Twitter, and uh, SD Throws on Twitter, and you can follow me on Facebook, too, if you really want. Uh, Sean Donnelly, my personal account, or there's a Sean Donnelly Hammer Thrower athlete page. You'll follow me for some informational, educational, motivational stuff like that. So Man. sorry for talking so long. <laughs> no, perfectly fine. We appreciate uh, you being on here with us. And so anybody listening, you've got Sean's social media handles and pages, so we'll put links to that in the description as well so you can go check that out well sean we appreciate you being on with us for the first throws chat podcast yeah hey, man thank you this is uh this is awesome if you guys ever need me back on the future if you ever need to fill in a week of uh of content you know i can talk for a while so only, only if you bring <laughs> the knowledge bombs oh i can do that i can do that yeah no it was great having you on sean we think uh you know we, we you pretty much emulate where we want this podcast to go in the future is we want to make it about the athlete you know, their story, their contributions to the sport, you know, what, what, you know, go beyond just purely the training methods. We want, we want people to know who these athletes are and how they can follow them and support their careers. And we think, you know, you know, this podcast is, you know, this is a great first step having you on. Exactly. Yeah. No, thank you guys. I appreciate it. And I, uh, I appreciate all you guys do for the sport. You know, like I said, like you said, this is, uh, this is a great way to help grow the sport of track and field, getting getting people to know the athletes themselves and uh, and their personalities and their little quirks and traits and stuff like that is going to go a long way in terms of uh, in growing the sport. So, hey, keep it up, guys. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, Sean, and have a great day. Awesome. We'll See you guys. Long enough. See you. See you. Throwers of all ages, mark your calendars for the biggest throws clinic of the year. Grand Valley State University is hosting the 2017 GVSU Big Throws Clinic in Grand Valley, Michigan on December 16th and 17th. This clinic will be offering the first ever USA Whammer Throw National Championship, weightlifting for throwing seminars, a USA Indoor National Championship for discus, and the Big Clinic features lectures from America's top throws coaches. 
Throwers who register with Roadie Sport as a referral code receive a four-week special strength training program designed for shot and discus throwers. Coach Roadie is also offering huge discounts on shot put gloves, wrist straps, and lifting straps to anyone who pre-orders them at registration. Visit throwschat.com for more info on how to register. So for this week's episode, we'll leave you with a quote from 2012 Olympian Justin Rohde. Make sure you attack every throw like you're slaying a dragon, shield and sword in hand, and with all the fire and vigor in your heart. Until next time on Throws Chat. Wu-Tang, Wu-Tang, Olympic torch flaming. We burn so sweet, the thrill of victory, the agony defeat. We crush slow, flaming deluxe slow, poor, judgment day cometh, conquer, it's war, allow us to escape hell, globe spinning bomb, pocket full of shells out the sky, golden arms, tombs fit the shitty mortal combat.